we're now having developers ask for conversions. We want to come in and take this 40 hectares of employment land and we want to convert it to luxury condos. So as an economic developer, this is where we are advocating for our manufacturers because we know if no one advocates for them, that land gets rezoned, the luxury condo owner moves in, the people move into the condo, then all of a sudden they don't want to be surrounded by manufacturers. You're listening to Making It in Ontario the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode... I sit down with a very interesting group of Ontario Economic Development Officers to discuss economic development in Ontario. My guests were Wendy Stark from Invest Windsor Essex, Ken Schultens from Niagara Region Economic Development, and Cephas Panscho from Tilsonburg, Ontario. Now, the title of Economic Development Officer sounds like a pretty clear title. And in a very basic sense, their jobs are to do just that, develop their local economies, however they define local. And in a post-pandemic world, in a province with disrupted supply chains and lingering labor and skills issues, their jobs have never been more important. Attract business, retain business, promote your region as the best in the world. Back in the day, it was called chasing smokestacks. And yes, elements of those things still exist in their jobs today. But as I came to understand, attracting investments to their respective regions is far more complicated than just waving a flag. Each region has its own strengths and weaknesses, its own value proposition, its own curb appeal, as we came to call it in the episode. Their jobs aren't to simply attract investments to their regions. Their jobs are to attract the right kinds of investments to their regions. And it's not a one-size-fits-all operation. So how do they do it? Well, let's find out. Here's Wendy, Ken, and Cephas discussing economic development so that we can keep making it in Ontario. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I am here today chatting with a very interesting group of people that are responsible for the economic development of various regions in Ontario. Now, rather than me singing their praises, I'm going to have them sing their own praises, and I'm going to have them introduce themselves, starting with my upper left-hand corner. Good afternoon. Thanks. Um, My name is Ken Schultens. I'm the manager of business development at the Niagara region in our economic development department. Um, Unlike uh, some of my colleagues here, our department is focused mostly on FDI and working with our um, local tier municipalities who um, cover the BR&E component or the business retention and expansion component of uh, the economic development portfolio. So I'm excited to be here. Thank you for joining us, Ken. And directly underneath Ken on my screen is Wendy. Hello, Wendy. Hi, Nick. Um, hi, everybody. So uh, my name is Wendy Stark. I'm the Director of Business Retention and Expansion for Invest Windsor Essex. And we are a private nonprofit corporation funded by the City of Windsor and the County of, Wessex, of, County of Essex uh, to, uh, to perform economic development services for the region. Thank you, Wendy. And finally, we have Cephas. Hello, Cephas. Yeah, good. Hello, everybody. I'm glad to be here. My name is Cephas Pancho. I'm the Development Commissioner for the Town of Tilsonburg in beautiful Oxford County. I am the one uh, lower tier municipality here today, so I guess I'll provide a more hands-on grassroots perspective if things go as planned. Wonderful. Thank you to all three of you for joining me. So let's start start big and get small. So in preparation for this podcast, I did the whole, 
what does Webster's Dictionary define economic development as? So, because uh, just is a good place to start, and it's a pretty broad definition when you're looking at it on Google. But starting with you three, how would you guys define that? Ken, I'll start with you just because you're in my upper left-hand corner there. Sure, um, I tend to view it very basically as economic development and our role as economic developers is to essentially provide customer service to the business community um, at a very basic level. Um, one, of the, one of the lines that I like to use with uh, businesses when I'm talking with them is nobody likes working with government. No one ever walks into the building department and says, all right, I got my site plan here. Engineering is gonna be so helpful. Um, so our job is to really make that complicated process as easy as possible and when necessary to act as an advocate for those businesses um, within government, which whether that's working with a, a local tier municipality, the province or the federal government. So they feel like they have that representation on their side. So I take a very simplistic approach to economic development. Simple is good. Simple is effective. Simple can often work really well. So that sounds great. Wendy, what about you? Uh, yeah, no, I agree, uh, Nick, with what you said initially, too, about, um, you know, being a very broad, um, broad definition, um, you know, just uh, programs and activities to increase economic prosperity in a region, I think is, I think I read that somewhere. But, uh, you know, in, in practice, um, as Ken said, it's, you know, it means different things to different people. And, and you are, you know, you're acting on behalf of your business community in some cases, and in other cases, you're acting on behalf of your uh, your funders or your uh, region. Uh, so it sort of depends on, on who you're talking to. And, um, you know, there are so many different ways that we go about, you know, performing these services for our region. Cephas? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I mean, at the base level, economic development is pretty much doing anything that's legal, of course, to really advance your economy, right? And, and I mean, when you look at the base definition of economic development, it's about improving the economic conditions. And interestingly enough, when you look at the book, uh, textbook definition, the social conditions as well, right? So I think that that's, I mean, that's probably a little bit more pertinent nowadays than it has been in the past, especially when we're going to, you know, get into some of the challenges that are challenging or, or that we're all facing coming out of this pandemic here, some of those social issues, especially, I think, housing, um, which is later on the agenda. But yeah, so there's, I mean, that's a great definition. I mean, I remember when I was in university and I was trying to explain to my peers what I was studying, right? And they're like, economic development, what the heck is that, right? And so, I mean, I don't know if I really knew back then either, right? But you're kind of making something up and you're basically talking about, you know, advancing the economy. And, and I, I even refer to myself now as basically on the real estate agent for the town, except our goals are a little bit different. Instead of just being transactional, we're really about um, you know, try, bring those jobs and tax base community. And it does come back down to jobs and tax base and growth. Um, but there's a lot more than that, of course. So let's talk real quick a little bit about that more than that, because economic development is more than just about developing the economy, isn't it? There's there's probably, the, like I think you mentioned, you, you touched on it, there's a social aspect to it. What are some of the intangibles that you're working on developing right now? That, that's a good question. What do you mean by intangibles? Well, curb appeal. How do you raise curb appeal? Because obviously, like we, I have three different economic development officers from three different regions in Ontario. So I would imagine that you have sort of like the hard things. And it's like, okay, our region has X resources, X uh, or Y uh, students available. What about its 
proximity to the border? What about its proximity to other businesses? Sort of, you know, the, the are the streets nice? Things like that. Does that fall under your purview as an economic development officer? Yeah, I, I think it does. And a lot of my colleagues jump in here too. Um, but I think that it's, it's funny with economic development, pretty much anything that's important locally and has an economic application can actually be economic development, right? So at the very grassroots level, let's get to curb appeal. I mean, how many economic development people here or even around Ontario have been involved with the um, Communities in Bloom program, for example, if you remember that a few years ago when everybody was trying to make their community a little bit more pretty and there was, you know, uh, provincial, national and international awards for communities in bloom, right? So that was something that was done very practically just to help improve the curb appeal, if you will, of communities. But at the very high level is, you know, those infrastructure, like I'm going to let Wendy, Wendy jump in with the bridge, like talk about the bridge to Windsor, how, in, sorry, to Detroit, just from Windsor to Detroit. Um, how instrumental is that bridge going to be for all of economic development southwestern Ontario? Yeah, and absolutely, it is. Uh, infrastructure is a, it, you know plays a huge, huge role um, in terms of things like appeal and so on. I think, you know, it depends on it depends on your community and it depends on the structure of your economic development agency within that community. Um, so I think when you're looking at a, a slightly smaller community. I think economic development will get much more involved in, in something like that, especially if they're, you know, a department within the, you know, within the municipality. Um, so for us personally, because we are, you know, not a department of the city or department of the county, we're, uh, you know, an arm's length uh, organization. Um, we don't get as involved in, in things like that, but certainly, certainly those things play a role in economic development. I mean, when you're trying to attract you know, you're try, trying to attract workforce to your city and, and showing them that it's a great place to live. And for us in particular, the proximity to Detroit and, and how much easier it will be to access once the bridge, the second bridge is in place. Um, you know, these are things that, that um, not only make maybe it attractive to a business to locate here because of ease of connection to a market, but also people to want to live here because you have additional things to do and uh, entertainment and what have you. So it's something that we would, even if, if we're not involved in the, in the nuts and bolts of, of um, the attractiveness of a main street, for example, you know, it is something that we would show off to clients or, or promote to, um, you know, outside, uh, outside folks to say, this is, you know, it's a good place to live. And I would actually just like to build off of Wendy's point is, so when you say, you know, what are the intangibles? Um, I can give you a very good example of something that I'm doing in my community right now. Uh, the province has said every community has to have a new official plan that is compliant with the new rules, the, the, with, the, with the new planning act. So what that means for Niagara is our official plan was very dated. And so we don't have employment areas in our official plan. And what all that is, is just designated areas of employment lands where manufacturers can operate. So unlike Wendy, where we used to be an arm's length corporation, we were then dissolved and brought into the region uh, for about the past, oh, I don't know, eight months, I've been working very closely, planning department, on identifying where those employment areas are going to go. Now, as we're getting into the sort of the deadline of, I think it's June 2022, when all the official plans have to conform the Planning Act, we're now having developers ask for conversions. We want to come in and take this 40 hectares of employment land and we want to convert it to residential development. We want to build luxury condos. 
So as an economic developer, this is where we are advocating for our manufacturers because we know if no one advocates for them and if that land gets rezoned, then the luxury condo owner gets moves in, the people move into the condo, then all of a sudden they don't want to be surrounded by manufacturers. So working with our planning department, um, we have seven of those requests. So there's seven developers that say, we want to turn these employment lands into residential lands because that, that gets us the greatest return on our dollar right now. Um, I've been working with them on a report to say, to, for a staff recommendation that says, you know what, council, reject these requests. They're not in line with how our community to grow. So that's, you know, when you're talking about those intangibles of BRE is very important. I mean, 90% of your economic growth comes from BRE. Um, but it's that kind of advocacy, it's that kind of support where you're not directly involved in those businesses, but you're protecting where they work and where they operate. That's a very good point, Ken, that you, uh, cause that, that's, that's something we've kind of started talking about internally. And that's that whole land use discussion. How's that discussion going, Ken? Thankfully, because, uh, part of my job as manager of business development and expedited services is to really work with the various departments at the region. Like I said, no one has ever said working with government is easy. So I've been having constant meetings with our planning department throughout the official plan process. When they are bringing forward this report to council to say, we want to reject these conversion requests, they call me and say, Ken, can you reach out to the community? So I reached out to our local chambers of commerce. Uh, we have an industrial association here, the Niagara Industrial Association, to tell them what's happening. And so they can go, what? There's requests to convert employment lands that are right beside my factory to residential. I don't want that to happen. What can I do to help? And I say, well, funny that you should ask. We have a committee where this report is going forward. If you feel this strongly about it, why don't you delegate to the committee to explain why protecting these employment lands is important? Because then you're providing counsel, which um, I don't know if uh, Wendy or or us have this, you know, views. This is kind of like our board of directors, if we were a corporation, you know, to say, don't convert these lands. And so now you have industry advocating to say, don't convert these lands. We need them, even if, say, a home builders association is also delegating to say, we need more houses, we need to convert these lands. So it is a bit of a sticky wicket, but um, in my professional opinion, it's those lands aren't gonna speak for themselves. Manufacturers tend to not advocate for themselves at regional government or municipal government. So that's where I said, you know, it's kind of providing that customer service is to say, here's the problem, we need your help. So now I have multiple chambers of commerce and a board of directors from the Niagara Industrial Association delegating to our planning and economic development committee to support the staff recommendation. Whereas if my job didn't exist, that work wouldn't be done. And then you may not have that voice at committee and council. So with regards to the Niagara Industrial Association, I want to give a quick shout out to one of our first, one of the first podcast guests. Mr. Aaron Tisdell from Girardi Machine. He really gave us a lot to think about when we like, cause that was one of the first episodes when we first launched. So Ken and, and the rest of you discussing the changing landscape and the shifting things. And 
Um, I'm going to start this, this next uh, round here by picking on Wendy for a second, because as I know, certainly from the podcast I did with your colleague uh, a little bit ago about the VR cave, Windsor has historically been Detroit North, Detroit.ca, right? The car town. In fact, even on your welcome sign, it says, welcome to the automotive capital of Canada. A lot of that automotive investment, I, it, I, I'm not going to, you know, raise a lot. I'm not, I don't want to be negative and say it's, it's, you know, oh, it's, it's reducing. No, it's changing. So how have you had to pivot your operations to adjust for what's happening in the automotive space right now? So, you know, as you say, you know, we have historically been known as Automotive Capital Canada. Automotive industry in Canada started here in 1904. Um, you know, we have a huge, long and, and storied history in that in that industry and wouldn't want to change that, you know, so it's just now it's a matter of bringing that to, to you know, to the, the modern day and, and look at what's, look at the direction of the automotive industry, because there's certainly still potential within that industry. It's just like you say, Nick, it looks, just looks a little bit different, um, you know, so that's how we are sort of positioning ourselves as, you know, transitioning from the automotive capital of Canada to the automobility capital of Canada, which mean you know, by that we mean, you know, any technology around the movement of people um, or goods all sorts of opportunities, you know, in that, in that area. And that's what we're focusing on now. And with, with the VR cave and, um, you know, some other projects that we've been working on, this is sort of the shift. So not forgetting that, you know, the, the car sort of made us what we are. Um, certainly our largest uh, private sector employer is still, uh, is still Stellantis, FCA, um, but they're shifting as well. So, you know, now being home to the, uh, you know, the, the battery electric, minivan and you know hopefully a new uh a new product line for that plant it's the same but different you know so that's that's sort of the big shift and then and then looking around a little bit more broadly at the the ev supply chain and you know what does that look like and how do we attract some more of that here and how do we have the the right you know labor force to support that industry because i don't think windsor's going to be shedding their automotive capital title anytime soon yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. no 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 that's i think ox is gonna make a run for it though wendy we're coming for you okay okay fair, fair warning fair warning yeah no and we still shots and we fired still have, like i can say like we still it is i mean manufacturing is our largest sector and you know within within manufacturing automotive uh, and automotive parts are the largest employers still so um and some of the some of that will be some some of the same you know regardless of, of being um, electric or non-electric. And we also have, of course, a huge uh, tool dime mold um, cluster here, which, you know, they, they live and breathe on changes to vehicles. So anything that's going to change a vehicle is great for them because they need a new mold or they need a new tool or, or what have you, right? So I'm going to ask the same question to uh, my other guests as well. What sort of pivots have you guys seen uh, in your time? Let's say that over the past... I guess maybe five years. So not to give Wendy um, a run for her money, but um, St. Catharines, Niagara, also um, a large manufacturer um, historically. Um, we've, we never claimed the title of Detroit North, but uh, we had two General Motor manufacturing facilities here. So 30 years ago, those companies were recruiting kids right out of high school. Um, my, you know, I can, speak to this my father worked at gm and retired out of gm working on an assembly line 
GM um, closed one of their facilities in St. Catharines, and they have their drivetrain or powertrain uh, facility still operating here. So that had a ripple effect on all the local manufacturers that had historically relied on GM for their business. And so I'm sure uh, Aaron brought this up of those companies either had to pivot or they died. And so what we've seen here in Niagara is a lot of those manufacturers started looking into new industries, finding new customers, and the ones that were successful um, continue to be successful. So we don't have that one large 500 employee, you know, engine manufacturer. It's now a number of smaller manufacturers that actually have a more diversified base because they're innovating and they're pivoting and they're developing new products, whether it was going from, you know, providing tool um, product for GM to now manufacturing product for the agricultural sector. So from an economic development perspective, um, we try not to get in the way of business. So we just sit back and go, if you need assistance, if there's grants or incentives, we raise that awareness to them. Um, especially if they're developing a new product, there are grants available. If you're doing sort of innovative technology development, are you aware of that? And so that's kind of where I see our role is let business business and, um, and support those that want to invest in our community. Now, Cephas, before I get you to answer the question, I want to quickly clarify something. Before, uh, when we started, you mentioned that you were representing a a, a smaller municipality, yeah, or what did you uh, well, call it? Well, the town of Tilsonburg is a, what we call a lower-tier municipality in the Oxford County. So a county is a rural body. We're actually a county that masquerades, or a region, I should say, which masquerades as a county. The difference is not really that important. We basically provide urban services across rural areas is a good way to describe it. So water and sewer, if you want to think about that. But um, whereas uh, Wendy's in a separated corporation, so a regional level, but they're not actually part of the county government or regional government, they're actually separate. And then uh, Ken, you're actually, I believe, like you said, that you're actually in regional government now. So you're at the essentially the county or the region level, right? Correct. Yeah. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yeah. So from your perspective, what sorts of new things have had, like, what, where, where have you had to pivot? Where's Tilsonburg pivoting to now? Or are you pivoting? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think that I'm going to go back a little bit farther than five years. Um, when you talk about economic development, please, it originally started in the 60s in a, as an industrial council. Like, so it was an industrial council to attract business to Ontario and the, and the municipality of Ontario. At that point, economic development was what we called smokestack chasing, which is exactly what the name sounds like. You know, like look for a smokestack and try to bring it to your area. Now, you know, we know that over the years that business industries really cleaned up its act from when this started in the 60s, of course, right? But but that whole, um, I guess, focus of economic development still is, and I, I mean, I represent an industrial park in the town of Tilsonburg. We call it an innovation park. So I guess that's a pivot right there, just in terms of branding. We're not just about the smokestack anymore. We're about innovation as well, right? So I think that those you know, if you look at, let's say, the last 20 years, and I've been roughly in the business for that, we've kind of gone from that more, again, still a bit of that kind of industrial focus to much more di um, diverse focus. And what I mean by that is it's not just, again, chasing the business and industry that comes to your town to try to get them to come to your town or your city or your region or whatever. But it's actually more about like what Ken was saying, BRE, so business retention expansion. How can we support our businesses here to actually export more? I'm a big believer 
in exporting. Exporting, in my mind, is the most important aspect of innovation because you're exposing your product to the entire world, right? And so you're going to get lots of feedback, which means your product should get better just by definition almost. So when we talk about business retention and expansion, then what we were talking about as well was also, and I'm hearing it come through, is this entrepreneurial aspect. So I think in the last five to 10 years, we've really seen the shift in focus to the entrepreneurial aspect, which is the third pillar, if you will, of economic development. So business attraction, business retention, and entrepreneurship. And this entrepreneurship pillar has become probably the most important pillar when you think about it right now. You know, the smokestacks are gone to a large extent. You know, business and retention, you have them there. Yeah, we've lost them through the recession, but they're coming back hopefully stronger than ever. They're pivoting too. And then the third pillar is that innovation aspect, that entrepreneur. So starting those new industries and businesses that even in Tilsonburg, you know, we're looking for, like I said, we've pivoted. We now don't call it in, you know, the Highway 3 Business Park, or even that's the kind of fancy name for industrial park. Now we're talking about innovation in Tilsonburg. We want companies, we don't necessarily want a company that has 500 employees anymore, not just because of the impact it makes when they leave, although that's certainly important, but it's also because we don't have 500 employees in most of our communities with the way the labor shortage is. We want companies that are using you know, technology and machinery to produce advanced goods um, that don't require a lot of people, require highly skilled people, but not a lot of people. So I think that that is really the big shift that I think that I've seen as well. Um, and, and then I think, you know, just adding in these elements in the last few years of, you know, you're looking at a more feeling that even in Tilsonburg, you know, we're under, just under 20,000 people looking at what we can do to build that com- complete community. So. so Cephas, you actually kind of went back and answered the previous question about the intangibles. <laughs> that idea of innovation and entrepreneurial spirit, I have heard that said countless times by podcast guests, by various stakeholders, by people I chat with. And to me, that sounds like the ultimate intangible. And yet we seem to have it. Everyone says Ontario is innovative, entrepreneurial, when we have those two qualities in spades. I guess my question would be now, how do you, how do you go about developing a strategy or devising a strategy to attract that seemingly intangible thing of an entrepreneurial spirit? How do you do that? So, Cephas, uh, I think um, what what you said is is spot on, and I think from my perspective, the challenge is making sure that those jobs are being created. Um, prior to joining the region, I did economic development consulting, and so um, I'm a bit more familiar with what's referred to as light out factories. And I will say, luckily, they haven't really come to Ontario, but. From my perspective, if Nike said we want to do a a light out factory in Niagara, that's not actually something I may be 100% in support of if it's just going to take up a piece of land and not actually generate any jobs within our community. So I think what you said is spot on. It's about threading that needle of how can we attract innovative companies that are going to contribute to our community and generate those high-skill, high-wage jobs. So I think you're a spot on there, uh, Cephas. But yeah, I just want to sort of throw that in there. I do apologize, Nick, because it's it's a more it's a very nuanced argument. And now to answer, so my perspective on Nick's question is I think a lot of communities also have to look at the reality of their value proposition. Um, So, for example, you know, Wendy and Niagara Region, we're one of very few communities that say you have direct border access. 
we have two class A railroads that connect a business directly to United States. Uh, we have two, three bridges, two bridges that allow for transport trucks to move product across the border. Um, not every community can make that claim, but that value proposition isn't right for every business. So you have to be targeted in what kind of businesses would benefit from those realities, those factors of your community, and then try and reach out to them to raise that profile, to raise that awareness. That's a good answer. I, that's, I like that answer. Now, you actually kind of flowed right into the next sort of question I had, which was discussing the various different regions in Ontario. And I guess we can speak to certain, we can, we can speak to three of them right now. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, well, I, I'll say competitive advantage, but I mean, for lack of a better word, tell us about your region's competitive advantage. What should they know about your region? And I'll start with Ken because he's in the upper left-hand corner. So um, because I was a consultant before getting the, the, the proverbial golden handcuffs, um, I hate the term um, quality of life. I've traveled from coast to coast in this country and every community boasts great quality of life. So what does that actually mean? To me, it's, it's a meaningless turn of phrase. So for Niagara, what I like to say is, Niagara is a beautiful rural urban community. We have a performing arts center. We have two post-secondary institutions. We have a hundred wineries. Does that sound good to you? then maybe Niagara is the kind of community you want to live in. If you want the glitz and glam of downtown Toronto, Niagara is not for you. So it's that's how I sort of view about selling your community. Be specific. Talk about what you really are. Uh, because to be honest, um, if Amazon wanted to open up a 1 million square foot fulfillment center, I actually don't think we could do that here in Niagara because we're so constrained by the Greenbelt, um, the Niagara Escarpment, provincially significant wetlands. I mean, we have to be a bit picky, if you will, in what kind of investment we want to attract and what kind of message we put out there as to helps us attract the kind of investor that we want or the kind of company that we want. I would, I would say, uh, I agree that you you have to say you have to say what you are because if you if you if you pitch yourself in a certain way, it's not going to take people very long to figure out that you know that's not exactly right. Um, so talk about the advantages you actually have, and I, but I think it does depend on on who you're talking to. Um, so we've now started to refer to ourselves um, as being where Canada begins instead of sort of the end of Canada. We're where Canada begins. You're coming from the U.S. You know, so certainly are there there are other border communities, but when you look at how we're geographically situated, surrounded by the U.S., you know, we like to to focus on that. And um, it it got a little bit more, it got a little different with COVID because of what's been happening with the border and so on. Um, but certainly, like having, you know, Windsor's a sort of a medium sized city. Essex County is is rural to a large uh, extent um you know so you have sort of that you can have that small town lifestyle we're a peninsula we're surrounded by water so you are never far you're never more than a half hour from a large body of water and you know living on the water there's you know tons of tons of opportunity for that but also having very big city amenities right next door you know having the having the major league sports within i mean you can take a bus 
well, you could take a bus. And after COVID, you'll be able to take a bus again. But, um, you know, having having all of those things at our doorstep across a quite attractive body of water, you know, is, is great, is a great way to, to promote yourself as, as a place to live. So there's certainly specific ways that we could we could talk about that. And then, you know, a lot of a lot of the business attractiveness things that we mentioned are, are related to the U.S. as well in terms of market access and so on, um, and just having sort of a, a complete supply chain. We talked a lot about um, about automation, and Ken mentioned that you know a lights out facility and so on. So, being we have a large automation cluster here as well, um, a lot of it's related to automotive, but not entirely. And um, so having sort of that that large supply chain here. So even if there aren't necessarily all of the the people we have, we all have, you know, labor force challenges across uh, across Ontario. So that's, you know, we're not unique in that. But um, you know, having had it, having some automation solutions to some of that, I think we would we would promote that as well. Yeah, no, I'll jump in on that too. I mean, I really think it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you set this up intentionally or not, but you've certainly got, you know, southwestern Ontario well represented. You've got, you know, east southwestern Ontario, Niagara region. Uh, you've got west southwestern Ontario, the exact west, actually the south of Detroit almost. Um, Windsor region and, and there, and of course Tilsmer is right in the heart of it in Oxford County, right? And and we really market our region um, as the heart of southwestern Ontario, right? Like Oxford County, 401, 403 come from one side, 402, 401 from the other side. So we can get to Windsor, we can get to Niagara, we can get to Sarnia, etc. Into the U.S. So for us, I mean, to be honest, for us, location is. I mean, every lo- every every place has its location advantages and disadvantages, right? And for us, I think we're, many of them are similar, but there's always nuances to them. So we've had multiple companies come here to Oxford County, to Tilsonburg, um, specifically because we were equidistant almost to all the border crossings. So if you have to get into the Northeast U.S. or you need to get into the Midwest, et cetera, you can go either way, right? And you can go two different ways depending on which way you're going. So I think that every region kind of has its uh, competitive advantages. But I also think we undersell Southwestern Ontario. You know, I mean, in the, in the past, I mean, Remember this, not too long ago, Kitchener-Waterloo, when I did my master's there, was a sleepy little town outside of Toronto. You know, St. Catharines was a cow patch and a few wineries. You know, no disrespect. I love Niagara. I was raised there. You know, in in Oxford, like, frick, Oxford, what the heck is that? Like, where is that? It's on the way to Windsor, probably, right? Or London. But you know what's going on here? Like, even when we talk about Oxford County here, and sorry, this is a long answer, but I really like to talk about competitiveness is that. When we talk about auction, we say we're auto and ag. And really by ag, we mean food processing because those are the two biggest sectors we have. Automotive manufacturing is the biggest component of our manufacturing sector, just like in Windsor, probably just like in Niagara, if I remember the numbers correctly. So, um, And then food processing is growing importance because of not just the pandemic, but the whole local food mo- movement, um, wanting to control our own destiny, right? So so when I tell a story when I'm abroad and, and I've had the privilege of traveling you know, to Europe and Asia to represent my community, I know that many of you have as well. You know what? We're not talking about just our region. I'm in I'm in Japan selling Windsor region, the access they have to the Detroit three uh, automakers, or or I'm selling Niagara region for the access they have to various products and all that. And I'm selling our region, of course, right? We want them to come here, but I mean, Southwestern Ontario is about 2.7 million people. It's the most densely part populated part of Canada outside of the city of Toronto, right? So. Yeah, it's a mix of urban and rural. And yeah, Wendy, you're right. There's a lot of rural in there some places and there's more urban in some others. But the bottom line is this region is so diverse and so um, it's not that big. It's actually so densely populated, even when you look around the world, that I think that there's that the world is coming here, you know. And I think that, you know, when we sell, you used to want to, you know, you used to sell in economic development. Sorry, long answer again. But 
you know, we would sell land, you know, here, we got dirt for you, right? That doesn't go very far. And then we're like, no, 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 we have dirt and we also have a great quality of life. Mm -hmm. We all have a different story to tell. And I love your point, Ken, on quality of life being, you know, overused 100%. I mean, that's a great point. So, but but what's a unique part of that for us, right? And And why does it match your business needs going back to that? And I think that when you talk about entrepreneurs, there's a higher level, higher level too, is you can innovate here. When I'm in a, I, I don't have any education institutions in Tilsonburg, right? So I'm, I'm at a disadvantage compared to you guys, you know? But what I'm saying is, well, you know what? You can innovate. You still, you're not that far. We're 45 minutes to KW, 45 minutes to London, blah, blah, blah. You can access the innovation centers. You can start your business here cheaply. And you know what? You're going to have, you're going to be able to be, still have time to be engaged in a community because you're not spending two hours every day in a commute even in a virtual world, right? So, so that's, that's a story we tell the entrepreneurs and the people that are, that are looking to grow and looking to invest and start businesses that, you know what, we do have a place here for you. And I know this story is very similar to what you guys would say as well, but we have to tell it in ways that are unique to our communities and speak to the audience that we're going for. So last prepared question. And it has to do, we've, we, we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but I'd like to take a real quick deep dive into it. COVID-19. How has it affected you? What, what, what are some of the, I mean, I'm sure there's, we could probably do a podcast episode just on this, but what are some of the high level points of what sort of disruptions did COVID-19 do to your operations? Can I start with a positive story? Sure. Um, so um, Niagara is home to a company called Abatement Technologies and they have um, their headquarters is in Fort Erie. And they also have some of their operations in Alabama, I believe it is. But they still do a lot of their manufacturing here in Niagara. Um, Abatement Technologies makes air purification systems and clean wall panels. At the outset of COVID, demand skyrocketed for their product. And now the other side of that coin is because it's, a fan, it's an honest to God family business, his brother, runs a local winery, Ravine Winery. They were shut down. The brothers talked. They brought the staff from the winery, upskilled them to work in the factory so they could work effectively 24-7, doing three shifts a day, seven days a week. And that demand hasn't decreased to the point that they're now investing. This, this was well-planned, but they're also now centralizing their entire operations here in Niagara. And they just broke ground on a $20 million facility in Fort Erie. So COVID, at, and I know we've all, I feel that we are all sick and tired of the negative of what it's done. But I think when you have those innovative entrepreneurial companies, they were posed with a problem, they had a product, and rather than being negatively affected by it, they are able to leverage it and grow into that sector. Abatement Technologies hadn't traditionally sold directly into the healthcare system or into the healthcare in industry. So they were able to pivot their business. So, you know, the, again, air, air purification systems also used in mining, also used in other industries. So they viewed it as a growth opportunity. So I think there's positive ways of how COVID can affect a community. So COVID-19 plus an innovative culture equals abatement technology exactly <laughs> no for sure and, and we i mean we i think we all have some very positive stories that that came out of this you know it, at the beginning it was you know everybody sort of falling each, falling over each other wanting to help and to see how they can help and 
and um, you know some were had more ability to help and to not, I guess like we all get tired of the word pivot, but not not totally pivot, but just you know make some small changes, not doing something entirely different, you know, but but change a little bit to do something that you know that would be helpful. And like I say, some were a little bit more able to do that than others. And I think we have you know like I say we have all some good success stories. We at the beginning sort of tried to, to keep track of all of the companies and we did some surveys and trying to track all of the companies that were developing something related to COVID or had something to offer related to COVID. And, and I think at last count, we were around 50 companies and, and most of them did want to continue doing this into the future. I'm not sure how many of them will actually be able to do it, but certainly a, a, you know, a couple of companies you know, got some large contracts. One sort of kind of heartwarming story that, that made the news, but I was in touch with the company quite a bit during this time was, um, was BASF who makes automotive coatings, you know, so that was maybe a bigger shift than some of the others because they actually did change to making hand sanitizer. So, I mean, a lot of companies started making hand sanitizer, but they went from automotive coatings to hand sanitizer. So they were entirely shut down because all of the automakers were shut down. So they, they brought back some of their staff and, and, um, you know, worked with, uh, I, I believe that one of the who formulations. So they got got through it all fairly quickly. They worked with Hiram Walker. So obviously with the, you know, some of the, the products coming out of there to, to help with the sanitizer. And, you know, it was really all these, these companies working together and, and with the city of Windsor as well. We had distilleries, wineries out in the county doing similar things. Um, and then we ended up with two sort of larger companies that, that, that got some fairly significant government contracts and made some fairly significant investments. One of them was Pat Plastics, which developed test kits uh, for COVID. So um, they got a, a fairly large uh, contract with the federal government. And so they're making, I can't even remember how many of these test kits they're making every day, but they made automotive plastic parts. And now they're making these test kits uh, as well as the parts. And then, um, and then um, uh, we have another company, Harbor Technologies, that uh, is, they're, um, they're a fabricator and they, they do a lot in the nuclear industry. And they came up with machinery to make gowns, surgical gowns. So, and, and uh, masks and 95 masks. So they have, they made the equipment and they're making the masks and the gowns. So they've now opened, I think their third facility in the area. They have one in, they opened one in Chatham, Kent as well, an additional one in the Windsor area and started a new business line, you know, to, to do the equipment and the manufacturing of the, the PPE. So definitely, I think, and I'm sure, you know, we all have some pretty cool, good news stories that came out of it. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think that, I mean, there have been some pivots. I think that overall in government, I would say that we're seeing this from the local all the way up to the federal level, right? Just the ability to, you know, normally it takes a year to develop a program, a year to get it approved, and a year to do, you know, to do actually implement it or something like that, you know, in general. So, I mean, we've quickly seen uh, municipalities because of the requirement to, you know, to help businesses, I guess, really pivot quickly. I know that most of our communities probably have, you know, the street patio program now. I mean, if you think about it, it was so funny, like for years, economic developers would travel all over the world and especially Europe and you come back and like, oh, the streets of Paris, so beautiful, cafes right up to the sidewalk. Oh, we can never do that here. You know, we got a, a liquor inspector that says you need to have a six foot high board fence on the street when you put a patio. And then we have the fire chief saying you can't have a six foot high fence because it's a fire hazard and it's going to trap people on the patio. And you know what? In a pandemic, we finally figured it out, right? You can have a patio on a street, you know, like like the rest of the world. So, I mean, I think that there's been a lot of those examples where, um, you know, and, and where people are, you know, had to pivot, where governments had to pivot. 
and local government included. And I think that the other thing is I think that people are recognizing, um, I really don't like the, the term essential versus non-essential business. I think, you know, all of business is essential. So I think that probably that's come a little bit more to the forefront as well, even though we did divide them into those categories through, three, uh, I guess, three shutdowns, I think it was. Um, but I think that really it's about, you know what, we need to help those businesses that weren't in that lucky essential category to make sure that they, you know, that they can actually survive, right? So, and obviously government can only do so much. In a day, you know, the leaders and the business owners in the private sector have to take the reins, they have to take responsibility, they have to pivot. Um, but obviously, like, I think Ken started the conversation with saying that, you know, part of this is working with businesses um, and, and being the friendly face of government, right? Government can just trudge along especially the higher level you go and think that everybody's on board and then you look back and no one's on board. Right. And I think that, you know, that, that that's the role of economic development is to make sure that people are on board. I want to thank all three of you. I've learned a lot from this. I'm there. There's a lot going on and I want to thank you guys for uh, sharing your insights today. I want to thank you for taking the time. Ken, Wendy, Cephas, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. You're welcome.